happens, you may remember there's a, there's a book in the back of the Bible called Revelation. And uh, I had been uh, uh, going through the seven churches of Revelation, uh, and we uh, have been a few weeks since we've been in that. We want to return to that today. And just to kind of refresh your memory a little bit, perhaps, um, we were looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And we've been looking at it more thematically than instead of going church by church. And so we started by looking at Christ's self-description. Every letter he begins with some description of himself. And we took a, a while to look at those beautiful descriptions of the Lord of the church. And then he says to each church, I know your works, and I have some good news for you, and I've got some bad news for you. So we we took some time to look at what the good news was, the good things he saw in those churches. We identified those. And then the bad news, the, the, the things that needed to be repented of, worked on, changed, we started that the, the last time uh, I was in Revelation, which was a month ago, uh, we began looking at the, uh, the bad things, and uh, we identified the first couple of them was, first of all, to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, it says, I know your works, and you've done a lot of good things, but you have left your first love. And this particular church at Ephesus had been great at guarding doctrine. They allowed no theological diversion. They are great at guarding doctrine, but they let go of love. And so he says, you have left your first love. And then secondly, we, uh, we looked at the church of Pergamos, verses 14 and 15. And he says, you allow impure doctrine. And they had love, but they didn't have good doctrine. And so between the two churches, you see the, the first church, Ephesus, had doctrine, truth, but not love. Pergamos had love, but not truth. And the idea is that we, of course, need both of them, truth and love, and both in full measure. And now, uh, today we go to the... Uh, Number three in our list here, which is to the church of Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 20. And the problem there, he says, is that you allow impure practice. Thyatira had, I mean, Pergamos had allowed impure doctrine, but Thyatira allows impure practices. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So you allow impure practices. I want you to notice the connection with the previous one that... Allowing the impure doctrine leads to allowing impure practice. That is, what we think and what we think about God particularly leads to how we respond to Him. And so thinking rightly leads to acting rightly. 
But if you have wrong thinking, wrong doctrine, you are going to end up having wrong practices. And that was true of Thyatira. And um, if you notice at the end of verse 20 here that uh, she seduced my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. If you go back to verse 14, the same kind of thing that happened um, in the previous church, Pergamos. At the, in fact, at the end of verse 14, talking about uh, Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. It, the same kind of a sin emerges. Out of impure doctrine grows impure practices. And allowing a little leads to allowing a lot. So, first of all, he says in verse 20, you have there that woman named Jezebel. Now, it's, it's probable that this is not her actual name, but she, she's uh, being called after her namesake. She's a type of the Jezebel of the Old Testament, 1 Kings uh, 16 through 19 especially. Jezebel was the wicked wife of King Ahab. We read about Ahab that he did more evil in the sight of God than any of, his, of the previous kings. And as if that were not enough, he added to his sin by marrying Jezebel. In other words, he was already the worst of them, and he got even more worse by marrying her. She led even into more deepness, darkness, and um, idolatry. And so this, this woman, whoever it is, is being called a Jezebel type of a person, and she's also leading them in that kind of direction. Notice it says that she calls herself a prophetess. She's not a prophetess. That is, God doesn't call her that. She calls herself that. She, she's telling them, hey, I'm a prophetess, without God's stamp of approval. Not only that, it says she calls herself a prophetess, and she also teaches. So here's a, a woman, an ungodly woman, who somehow has been given the role of teaching in the church, and that should have never come to pass. And then notice what she's teaching. She is teaching and seducing my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, eating the things sacrificed to idols was a way of, of demonstrating, showing that there's no difference between God and the idols. And... Um, it was to identify with the idol worshipers. And then, of course, it, uh, the sexual immorality went along with the, the paganism, the idolatry of the time. And evidently, she was teaching that it's okay to engage in all that while at the same time being a Christian and doing good works. Verse 19, I know your works. Love, service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. This is a church full of good works, but also bad sin. And they were, they were living in such a way that she was teaching them, you can combine those things. You can worship God, and you can eat at the table of demons. 
You can do good things, but you can go out and commit sexual immorality, and it's, it's all okay. So the, her teaching led to the impure practice. Wrong doctrine leads to wrong practice. And we also notice here in this passage about this particular church at Thyatira that knowing evil does not lead to doing good. Knowing evil is not going to lead to doing good. Verse 24. Now I say to you and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who don't have that teaching, who don't, who don't agree with that teaching, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. So, Part of evidently what was going on is there was a uh, the part of the teaching was we need to know the depths of Satan. We need to go into Satanism and know all about that. The, the reason that kind of teaching grew up in the early church is uh, an early form of what was called Gnosticism, which developed a system of worship of angels. And once they established this, they divided angels into different levels. And they worship them according to their, their level. And Colossians 1, uh, I mean, Colossians uh, 3 talks about not worshiping angels. And so once they did that, then it was just a step away. Well, you know, demons are fallen angels, so why don't we study them and, and try to know the depths of Satan? When I was in uh, seminary, um, after the first year, a fellow student decided he was going to move to <clears throat> a certain place in Texas where, uh, which was known for uh, satanic worship. And he was going to move there and study them, try to get to know what it was like. Within a year, this man was involved in sexual immorality. He lost his wife, his family. He got involved in drugs. He completely lost everything because he wanted to study the depths of Satan. The Bible never tells us to do that. We're to flee Satan. We're not to study him. Have nothing to do with it. In fact, Ephesians 5 says, Walk as children of light and have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather expose them. And then we come to the church of Sardis in chapter 3, verse 1. And before we look at that, I want to just share with you a, a story from the uh, Sarasota, Florida news. Uh, this this came out in the news a few years ago. Uh, there was a woman there in Sarasota, Florida, an elderly woman who uh, had completed her shopping and she was walking back to her car when she noticed that there were four men in her car trying to leave with her car. And she dropped her bags and having prepared for a moment like this, she pulled out of her purse a handgun. And she 
pointed it at them, and she said, I have a gun, and I know how to use it. Get out of my car now. And those four men scrambled out of the car, falling all over each other, and ran off. So she was still pretty shaken up by this and put her bags into the back of the car and got in and sat in the driver's seat and still kind of shaky. She couldn't get her key into the ignition, but she tried, and she tried. She knows there's a football on the seat next to her. It was not her car. So she knew she, she needed to go report it to the police. So she drove to the police station and uh, told them what happened, but the sergeant at the desk couldn't stop laughing. He said, lady, we didn't believe four guys who came in here earlier <laughs> reporting a carjacking by a person they described as a little old lady, less than five feet tall, with curly white hair, wearing glasses, and carrying a large handgun. <laughs> well, the, the article ended by saying, the moral of the story, if you're going to have a senior moment, make it memorable. <laughs> but there's another moral of the story perhaps we could draw from it too, and that is, Appearances can be deceiving unless you look a little closer. And that is true of this next church of Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. It appeared that they were alive. Their reputation was that they were an alive church, but God is not fooled. He sees beyond our activity and our pretense, and he sees what's really in our hearts. He knows that of us as individuals, and he knows that of us as a church, what is really there. So this church at Sardis was actually kind of like a pine tree I once had in my yard. It was, for all intents and purposes, it was dead. It had gotten a disease and it died. But here and there on the tree, there were a few little green spots, a few green needles from the pine tree here and there. And so look at verse 2. It says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before me. So that evidently there were some things which remained. And then verse 4 says, You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So there were, there were a few who were alive, but... For the most part, that church was a dead church with only a reputation for being alive. John 6.63, Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. 
The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So what does a a dead church need? It needs the spirit and the words of Christ. Those are spirit and life. It's the same thing for an individual who is they're dead inside. The flesh profits nothing. They need the Spirit of God working in them and the Word of God, especially the Gospel, the good news of Christ, to, to come to know Him in a personal way. Number five, the church at um, Laodicea. Now, it's interesting, the church of Philadelphia verse 7 and following, there's nothing bad said about them. But when we get to chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 and 16, we see the church of Laodicea. So let's look at verses 15 and 16 in chapter 3. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm... And neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. They were lukewarm. Now, if you go to a coffee shop, how do you like your coffee? You ever go in and ask, um, I'd like a lukewarm cup of coffee, please. We want it hot or we want it iced. One or the other. But not lukewarm I, I was served a cup of tepid coffee once at a, a coffee shop and I, I told the, the lady this is a Laodicean cup of coffee <laughs> she had no idea what I was talking about <laughs> but what does it mean to be lukewarm then is an indifference to the things of Christ. Lukewarm. Not an outright rejection, but not a real interest in the things of Christ either. A a lukewarm person or a church will not take a stand for Christ or stand for His Word. A lukewarm person or church does not openly deny him or his ways, but rather counts them of little consequence. Lukewarm means not having discernment and discretion in choices, not pursuing the things of Christ. Being satisfied with just getting by instead of pressing on to be a godly man or godly woman. A lukewarm church is satisfied with the status quo, with mediocrity instead of excellence, with being learners of the word and not doers, with having activities instead of ministry, in feeding itself instead of giving out the bread of life. A lukewarm church is indifferent to the things of Christ. But also, a lukewarm church is nauseating to Christ. We note that some churches make him weep 
Some churches make him angry. A lukewarm church just makes him sick. John Stott um, writes in his book, What Christ Thinks of the Church. Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the uh, church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. And it makes Christ sick. Not only were they lukewarm, but number six, he says, you are self-sufficient. Verse 17, because you say, the causal statement here is, Link back to what he just said. They're, the reason they are so lukewarm is because of this image they have of themselves. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't see yourselves as you really are. You're self-sufficient. Now, I've never known a person with a self-image or self-esteem problem that, who thought that they were thinking too highly of themselves. That's more likely to be our case. We are more prone to think too highly of ourselves than to think too lowly of ourselves. And here it is true of the church of Laodicea, they had a disastrous self-image problem because they thought so highly of themselves. You say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And today, success is killing the church. In the early church, you may remember Peter uh, encountering uh, the lame man at the beautiful gate as he's entering in the temple. Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but such as I have I give to you. In the power of the name of Jesus I say, stand up and walk. The church today is more prone to say, Silver and gold I do have, but that's Pitiably, all they have. There's no calling on the power of the name of Jesus to do anything. There's no recognition that we need to come before Him in prayer, bow our hearts before Him, confess to Him that we are nothing without Him, that we are totally in need of Him. Abraham Lincoln said of, of us as a people, intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become the self, too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. Is it possible for 
that to be true of us as believers? May God deliver us from ourselves to the point that we, we know that our only and our all-sufficiency is Jesus Christ alone. So, as we think through these things that Jesus said to the churches that were bad news for them, we don't want them to be bad news for us. And so, one way to look at this is, what's the opposite of what they did? How can we be different than that? Well, it begins with love. Remember, Church at Ephesus, you have left your first love. It starts there. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then there's a need to hunger and to thirst for the Word of God and be committed to obey it. That is, have right doctrine and right living based on that right doctrine. Hungering and thirsting for the Word, commitment to live by it. And then to earnestly desire the power of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives individually and to work in our lives as a church body. And to cling to Christ as our all-sufficient Savior. Let's pray. Lord, uh, as we read these things about these other churches, we wonder what you would say about us. And Lord, search our hearts and know us and show us if there is any evil way in us that we might uh, repent of that before you, that we might acknowledge it, that we might uh, plead with you for your gracious working in, in a, us and among us. Lord, we desire to be a church that, instead of making you sick, makes you smile. A church that brings you glory a church that you can use. And Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. And uh, we just want to commit ourselves to you with thanksgiving that you never give up on us. You are a great and faithful God. In Jesus' name, amen.